If you have a Bible, um, turn to Revelation 3 uh, or your app. And if you don't have either, we will put them up on the screen. But today we find ourselves in the fifth city as we work through the seven cities mentioned in the book of Revelation. So Jesus addresses seven churches in the book of Revelation, right? We're on city number five, the city of Sardis. And we have a lot to learn today. It's a great city for us, for, for Knoxville specifically, okay? Um, some of you know this about me and some of you don't, but I didn't intend on being a pastor as I grew up. I went to school to be a surgeon um, and was very excited about it uh, up until the time that God rescued me and revolutionized my heart. And then all, all I wanted to do is plant and build things and preach and see discipleship occur. And uh, that, that was my deepest joy. So I came out of medical school to do this. But my last semester as an undergrad, I took a class called Gross Anatomy. In gross anatomy, you're not really dissecting owl pellets or fetal pigs or frogs. You're dissecting humans, human beings. Never saw a dead person before, to be totally honest with you. And, and listen, you're probably thinking in your mind, I could do that. Let me tell you, it's easy to talk trash, but whenever you get up on a dead body and it all smells like formaldehyde, looks like grandpa with no clothes on and it's all weird and you got a professor grading you, not so easy. And I remember my very, very first class, right, being there, and the professor is talking to us. His back is to the, the bodies, the bodies under sheets, looking very ominous, very mysterious. There's two of them on what they call tanks. And we're, he's talking to us as we're facing him. There's about 40 of us students, I think, at the time. By the time the class was done, there were 17 of us, right? And I remember as he's talking to us and being very visual, there's not going to be a curve in this class. I just want you to know. And he's telling us what the class will be like. Everyone's listening, but no one's listening. You know what I'm saying? Everyone's watching, but no one's watching this guy. We're all watching the dead bodies. We're looking at the dead bodies. And out of nowhere, this puff of wind comes through an open door because they were trying to vent the room out a little bit, and the edge of the sheet comes up. You can see a foot. A foot. That's it. One girl passed out, three others quit the class right there, right? A little syllabus mode. They're already done, you know? I stuck it through in that class and did well in that class and actually got to where I, I could enjoy that class. But I found out that the more I was dissecting who we called John Doe, I got more philosophical, right? I was less interested in the biology, and I started to feel for this guy. You know, he, I mean, he was a real guy, had a real life. Real dreams and hopes. And I remember one day as I'm working on his elbow, you know, and looking like what you'd expect it to look like. And, and, and I, I don't know if it was God or I, I don't know what. I, I assume it would be. I'm looking and then I'm, I'm reminded that this is an arm that did real, real things. Probably swung a hammer, right? Probably put a ring on a girl's finger. He was old enough. I, he, he might have thrown a grenade or pulled a trigger in one of the world wars, you know, probably shook some hands and cut some deals, probably put his arm around his daughter as he walked her down the aisle. He was a real guy, real adventures and stories and risks, and now, not so much, not just a dead body on a cold slab surrounded by a bunch of snobby college students that are cutting him up. I mean, is that depressing? Am I, am I, are you sad yet? <laughs> I think the reason I bring this up is many Christians I meet look a lot like John Doe. Had some wars they fought in the past. Had some adventures that they had. Had some relationships come and go. Had some risks that they took, hopes and dreams, but something along the process happened to where now they just look at their life 
no more wars, no more adventure, no more risks, just kind of sleepy, you know, kind of slothful, lethargic, coma-like, maybe even dead. And I think some of you are there now, and that might resonate with you a little bit. And don't we always ask the questions, how, do, how did I get here? I used to be so passionate about the Lord. I used to be so excited about things. I used to open up the Bible and be so excited to read it. I used to love to pray. And when it came time to meet with other saints, whether it was Sunday morning or Tuesday night, I was there early because I was excited about it. What happened? What happened? It's all gone. So I think what happens is our testimonies become kind of old and dusty. We retread them because they're good testimonies, and we don't really see God doing anything new in our midst. So we just kind of reuse the old testimonies of what God has done, because at least it reminds us that we're still alive a little bit, right? And what about the good old days? Don't we like to reminisce? I remember that church. That church was the best of my days. That community group, those were the good days. My friends then, those were the golden days, but those days aren't now, are they? Right? You guys know I hate props. And I don't use them often, but I felt like this might be helpful because for many years in my Christian walk, I would think of it as a ladder, right? So you have a ladder here with multiple steps, right? This one says it's not a step. I bet it is, though. Y'all want to see? Y'all want to see if this is a step? Yeah. No, I'm not doing that bad. <laughs> Some of y'all are bringing your phones out to see that. Put that online. It's not happening. Um, so this is, this is it. And we imagine being up on this top step is being in the optimal place. This is where God is blessing you, right? This is where in your middle of his will for your life. Just got a promotion, no static in your relationships, you feel good, you're sleeping good, you feel like you're hearing God correctly, right? Everything is almost perfect. It's like this is where God has called you to be, and as long as you're here, he's blessing you. But this isn't where we find ourselves today, is it? Some of you are down here, right? Some of you are probably feeling like you're here. Some of you are down here. And of course, the only way to get up to that top step is through work and striving and grinding and cleaning and cleansing and doing whatever it takes to get right back up there. Some days you're a step up. Another day you're two steps down, right? Just depends on whether it's a good day or a bad day. Over time, though, whenever we're done going up and down stairs, up and down stairs, trying to look for this golden step, it's easy to just throw our arms up and say, I, I can't do this. It's just no use. I'll just manage my sin, right? I'll just manage it. I'll just kind of shift it around so it doesn't embarrass me and it never inconveniences me. And I'll just kind of grind it out. I'll find a church because that's what you're supposed to do. And I'll go through the motions, but there's no passion in it. There's no love. There's no adventure. There's no risk. Out of great agony, out of great frustration, when I bump into people that are in this mode of life, living right there, right? Um, I hear them say things like, Luke, I know I'm supposed to care, but I just don't care. How do you make yourself care about something you just don't care about? How do you love something you just don't love? How do you manufacture life where it's just death? How do you do that? It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, today we're going to look at a church that has passed its prime, Sardis, right? A church that is just about dead. Their best days have been behind them, right? Sardis is going to be helpful for us um, because it doesn't just describe a dying church. It describes the every church, 
right? It describes your average church here in Knoxville and really nationally. 80% of churches in the nation, and that does mean this city as well, right, which in our metro area is 640 pulpits, right? 80% of the churches in America are in decline or in stasis. That's it, right? 80%. The 20% that are growing, half of them are fighting over the people coming from, you guessed it, the dying churches, right? Leaving only 10% to grow evangelically. Sardis is one of these dying churches. Dr. Havner, Richard Havner, he always said that there was four cycles of any ministry. It starts off as a man, then it becomes a movement, settling into a machine, and then dying as a monument. Sardis, today, for us, it's a monument. Full of a great reputation, but it's always a days gone by, right? Just to kind of cast a Polaroid of what this city looks like. We're going to go ahead and look at it in chapter 3, verse 1. Just read with me. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. It is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Last week, when we looked at the city of Thyatira, we made mention of and saw in the scripture how Jesus does a very good job of introducing himself appropriately to different cities. He speaks to people in a way that they will understand, right? So what this means is, is he does not use, I don't know, just common everyday phrases, blank phrases, generic phrases or words. He is an excellent missionary. You know, a good missionary is one that will be able to go, let's say we're going to Japan, we'll go into a culture actually knowing how to speak Japanese, probably a little bit important, right? But not just knowing the language of how to speak Japanese, but what are the cultures? We say Christmas, they say, right? We work this many hours a week, they work. What are the rhythms? What, what gets them excited? What makes them sad? Where are their idols? A good missionary knows those things. So whenever they proclaim the gospel, their gospel runs through that filter so that the people understand what the missionary is trying to say. Jesus is the ultimate missionary. He's doing that right now. There's bits and pieces peppered all throughout that passage that show us this. Now this is the thing. This is God's grace to us. Grace, and how we describe it, grace is God giving you favor totally despite you. Despite your best attempts to get it yourself and despite your best attempts to run away. Grace comes to you as favor despite you. The reason that God, or let me just say it this way, God speaks to us in a way that we understand that is a grace to us. He doesn't have to do that, and we don't deserve it. He could be silent. We would deserve that. He didn't declare war on us. We declared war on him. He could have just been silent. You guys figure it out. 
I'll see you on the flip side. We'll see how it works out for you. That, that, that is his rightful position. The fact that he speaks to us is a grace. The fact that he speaks to us in a language we understand, that's a deep grace. And he doesn't just do it for churches. He does it for individuals too, doesn't he? Any of you in here ever feel like God has revealed something to you in a way that you understand, but if you were to try to relate to someone else, some of it would be lost a little bit. Ever feel like that? It's almost as if when God speaks to you, whether it's in a dream or a vision or you're watching a commercial or someone said something to you or you read something in a book, it's almost as if it was made specifically for you. And you know at that moment, this is good. God, I get it. I hear you. But in your excitement, as you tell somebody else, they're excited too, but not as excited as you. Why? Because he's speaking to you with a grace as a good missionary, saying things that you would understand better than anybody else. Now, of course, these revelations, they sit underneath Scripture, and they're interpreted by Scripture. But listen, if you've never heard God speak to you in that way, you should ask Him to. Crying out loud, ask Him to. He'll do it. Some of you are trying to figure out who you're supposed to marry, whether you should take that job, whether you should move, whether you should confront that person. Lots of desperate times where you just need God to speak. Ask Him to speak. Ask Him to speak, and He will. It's very good like that. It's very sweet to us. Here we have the same thing happening in Sardis. Jesus is talking to a city who Artemis is the chief god. Last week, when we looked at Thyatira, it was Apollo. Apollo was the chief god, right? Here it's Artemis, which is kind of our version of Mother Nature, right? Artemis is over Asheville, probably. It's one of those cities where the life cycle is the big thing. It's all about living and being born and dying. It's all about life and death, born, dying, all of that. It's the biggest theme. Do you notice how he's talking to them? You're dead. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're not alive. You're dead. They get this. Notice he says he's going to come like a thief in the night, which Jesus actually said before he was crucified as well, remember? Now this city's going to hear that a little bit differently. That's because it's, it's a peculiar city in the fact that Sardis is perched up on a hill in an impregnable position. It would have been very difficult to sack that city, but it actually happened twice in that city's history, right? And it happened at night when they weaseled them way up, their, up this back path to get to the city when the watchmen and the sentries were not watching, right? So in the dead of night, like a thief, that city was taken. And Jesus is saying, if you don't hold fast, if you don't repent, if you don't remember, if you don't keep hold of the gospel. If you don't obey, I will come and I will sack that church. I will take it. Speaking to a people that understand. What about garments? Notice these soil garments, white garments. That's their number one export. It's a very textile-driven society, right? So they understand exports. For us, guys, what would it be? If, if Jesus were to write a, a letter to Knoxville, it might, sound, it might have some football language that I'm just going to say, right? It might, it might have something to do with football in one shape or form. Why? It's our, it's our major export. It really is. We get it. That's how we talk to each other. We would understand it. Now, would another city understand it? Yeah, they would, but we really would. You know what I'm saying? That's what's going on right now. Notice he does not talk to them about heresy. Their statement of belief, little page on their website, I'm sure it was crisp. I'm sure it was tight, put together well. He also doesn't talk to them about persecution because there wasn't any. Because they weren't doing anything to rub the culture wrong. They're just a church that used to be alive and now the culture just kind of allows, they're indifferent to it because it's not doing anything. There's no life in it. It's not saying anything that's going to make anyone 
irritated in them. They're their own worst enemy. Notice that he introduces himself as holding the seven spirits and the seven stars. It's kind of mythical, isn't it? What that means is this. Those stars are symbols of pastors and leaders. What he's saying is, is these are seven churches that I'm addressing overall, but make no mistake, I am the senior pastor, he says. I could trade them out at any time. Any time. I could take a pastor from here, replace it with a pastor, shut the whole thing down. I am the king, creator, God, pastor, shepherd of these churches. Seven spirits. It's a little weird, isn't it? Because we all know there's only one spirit, right? One spirit. Seven is a number of completeness or fullness. What he is communicating to a people that would have received it this way is that God has the fullness of the Spirit. Now, this is important for a church like this because they need the fullness of the Spirit. It's a dying church. When the Holy Spirit is in a church, you see life, you see excitement, you see an empowered ministry. It doesn't look dead. Have any of you ever been in a dead church or a dying church before? Whether you were a member or just a guest, no life, no babies, no spiritual babies, no new marriages, no new missional communities, no new news, no new anything. There's probably not much of the Holy Spirit there. Probably. But when you find the Holy Spirit, you find life and joy. Listen, when we pray as a staff and when I pray for this church, I pray that we have good doctrine, right? Because it's important to have good doctrine. And there's, another, I mean, there's, there's enough churches in the city with junk doctrine that it's important that we have good doctrine. And I, and I pray for good community and good mission. But friends, we need the Holy Spirit. We are desperate, desperate for the Holy Spirit. We are wanting to do things impossible without the Holy Spirit. You can't have joy as a church without the Holy Spirit. You can't have sturdy gospel application to a city and to each other without the Holy Spirit. You can't have forgiveness without the Holy Spirit. You can't have reconciliation without the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Ghost. So I love how he introduces himself here. But it, does, but it does bear asking the question, how can this even happen? How can a church be so dead but look alive? Right? How is that even possible? It's a principle called the Pareto Principle. And you've heard the principle before, even if you don't know the name. Vilfredo Pareto, back in the early, early 1900s, late 1800s, developed it after he noticed that 80% of Italy was owned by 20% of the people. And the 80% of the peas in his garden were actually in 20% of the pea pods, right? The 80-20, we get that. It's been translated to physical training, the business world, schools, churches. It states that 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. It's the 80-20 rule. 20% do 80% of the work. 80% do 20% of the work. It's what we've all always come to know. It's very easy to look like you're alive when you're very dead, because of that. Listen, you could have some slam dunk greeters that are like bubbly and encouraging and make you feel loved when you walk in the door. You're like, whoa, I feel loved. I love this place. And come in and it's Grumpyville, right? Everyone's in cliques all over the place. Friendly greeters don't make a friendly church, right? You, you, hey, listen, you could have some just incredibly generous givers. They write checks, and it's just music to their ears. You know, when they sign a check and they give it and they love it, does not make for a generous church. You could have new life coming up and people being dunked and baptized all over the place because of the evangelical muscle in some people. doesn't make us a missional church. It's very easy, because of the Pareto principle, it's very easy to have a church that is, in fact, kind of decaying, coma-esque, 
inside, but in fact looks and has the reputation of being very alive. Some of you know this, some of you are the 20%, some of you know this, some of you are the 80%. Some of you, you're not sure where you're at. Even up to this point, you can't figure out if you're alive or if you just have the reputation of being alive, right? How can you tell? How can you tell if you're alive or have just the reputation of being alive? I think we could learn a little bit from John Doe, the guy I dissected which would have been an even cooler prop up here, right? None of y'all would have come back. <laughs> Much better than the latter. But could you imagine? Look at this. There's some things that dead people just don't do. Can we look at that? Dead people don't reproduce. This guy's baby-making days long behind him. He's dead on a slab. It's not happening. Listen, there are a lot of Christians, a lot of people who call Jesus king who don't invest in anybody. I'm talking spiritually. They don't invest in it. And I'm not talking just salvation. Uh, that, that is important, missional investment, but even communal investment. They don't sow seeds. They, they don't shepherd. They don't counsel. They don't mentor. They don't speak their mind. They don't do any of that. If I was to ask your average Christian on the street who it is that disciples them, pastors them, sows into them, they might actually cough up a couple names, chances are, but if I turn around and ask that same person who they sow into, I might get some blank stares. It's very possible. It's a harder question, right? It's harder. The common retort is, but Luke, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I'm definitely not holy enough, and I don't have my stuff dialed in yet. I'm just not a good candidate to be pouring into other people. But if that is something that you feel come up whenever this subject comes up, remember, you are a failed and flawed person leading and investing in failed and flawed people. That's who I am. I'm failed and flawed, preaching to a room full of failed and flawed people with the goal and the object of reaching a city full of failed and flawed people. We don't invest and sow into others because we've arrived. We invest and we sow into others because we've been heavily sown into. Because our God is an investor. He didn't just invest, he invested his deepest treasure, his own. He invested in us. It's important that we see this. The gospel should provoke us to do this. We live by the grace that comes from a God who sowed selflessly for our benefit when we were our most dirty and found to be misbehaving the most. Well, Luke, what if they don't reciprocate? What if they don't stop sinning? What if they don't show any reaction to my coaching? Well, that's what you do, friend. God investing in you, and you do the same thing. That's not up to you. That's not up to you. That's not on you. God hasn't called you to make free. He's called you to invest. Invest in other people. Dead people don't do it. They don't. Dead people also don't repair themselves. Right? This is important. I can cut this guy, and I did. You could cut him. None of his wounds healed, turns out. Stitched him up, put bandages on him, clamped him, all kinds of weird stuff. It's never going to heal itself. And very often I walk in and out of churches and I see Christians who they bounce into other Christians. Let's just say they slam into other Christians. And there's some sort of an unforgiveness. Someone said something wrong, looked wrong whenever they said something wrong, whatever it is. And now there's an offense. And they will say, I forgive you, but the wound is still open. And they're still bleeding from it because they are not repairing. And you could put bandages on it, you could stitch it. There's no repair, right? 
And let me tell you, from someone who lives in East Tennessee to a room full of East Tennesseans, smiles don't mean forgiveness. Turns out, if you smile all day, it's easy. Saying you forgive somebody doesn't mean you've forgiven somebody. It doesn't. You truly need to repair and forgive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm a, I'm a stickler on this. Listen, the only correct way to forgive is to be motored and fueled and it's just compelled by the gospel. It is by God's, well, let me just say it this way, our hands brought wounding to God, and yet his heart is endeared towards us. So by our murderous hands, blood on your hands, blood on my hands, we murdered Christ. Our sins put him up on the cross, right? But he repaired in the fact that he loves us. He is passionate for us. He doesn't forsake us. He comes after us. He's excited about us. His wounded heart becomes endeared to us. The gospel, and this is the crux of the gospel, it's not good because he came to you when you were awesome, right? If God came to you and you were just awesome, like, like, a, like a cute, snuggly little baby, right, who's never done anything wrong before. I mean, we all love babies. We're about to have more babies here. There's no smell greater than their heads. You ever smell a baby's head? Is there anything better than that? They're so sweet. Look how sweet you are. It's easy to accept the baby, right? I accept you. I love you so much. Look how cute you are. Even their poop is cute. Oh, he just went poop. He's so cute, you know? Great. Listen, that's not how it was. God didn't come and say, oh, look how cute you are. Look at that little boo-boo you made. I'm so excited about you. You're so endearing. Let me just smell your head and get a big whiff of your goodness and your sweetness. Friends, we were at war with him. He's drawing us close and we're swinging back and spitting and, and cussing at him. We stink. We've got grime on us. It's gross. That's when he got us. That's why the gospel's good news. It was when we were at our worst that he came and he gave us his best. It's exciting. Whenever I bump into people who are not Christians or who are Christians that do not get the gospel, Whenever they say, yeah, yeah, I've forgiven that person and I'm, I'm beyond that now, that most typically means that what that person did was not big enough anyway, it doesn't really mess with them, or it means that they have held on to some of it and they've like maybe 50% forgiven them, but they're going to hold on to the other 50% because they, quote unquote, have that right. They have that right. Have you ever been in a dying church before? There's a lot of rumors, a lot of teams, a lot of offenses. A lot of people bickering on their way to and from church. Did you see what he said to me? I don't want to go to that thing because they're just going to be like this again. Always bickering back and forth and back. It's the sign of impending death. It is. Some of you this very morning are living in unforgiveness, either for something very small or for something quite big, maybe with someone in this room. And let me just tell you right now, you don't have the right to have that. It's not your right, friend. You don't have the right to have that. It's not your right to have unforgiveness. You don't get a buy. But Luke, you don't know what they did. Luke, you don't know what they did to me. I know what you did. I know what you did. And I've had to go through this exercise with people. Let's look at what you did. You put Jesus on the cross, right? So we're on the same page. Yes, Luke, we're on the same page. Now let's go back and look what this person did to you. All right? Now let's compare the two. Now if you're right and what they did to you is worse than what you did to Jesus, then I abdicate and you're right. You're right. We'll go ahead and change our, our church's doctrine, right? Because you're right. right. 
It's not the case. Dead people also don't grow. The height and the weight and the build of this guy came from past meals, past exercises, a little bit of genetics. But whenever he died, it all stops, allegedly, except for your nose and your ears, whatever that means. But it stops. All growth stops, right? And I meet a lot of people. Let me ask you as a Christian, do you know why you look the way you do spiritually right now? It's because of what's happened in the past. It's been your diet of past. Your exercises, your spiritual disciplines of the past have produced who you are now. Guess what you're going to look like in six months, friend? We can predict it right now with pretty high accuracy. We can forecast it. That's right, your diet, your exercises, your spiritual disciplines between now and then. That's what builds you up. Let me ask you, what are you reading right now? What are you reading? Not to make you feel guilty. Just do an honest assessment. I'm not even talking about books. What's making you excited in, in God's Word? What are you reading that you just can't get enough of right now? Right? What are you memorizing? That's important. What are you committing to your soul that you could chew on during the day? What, what do you find yourself singing when you're alone, when no one else is there to hear you sing? Or praying? What do your prayers sound like? Who are you running with? Where do you take joy? Right? I'll tell you, as someone who has coached in the past and someone who has pastored in the past, usually when people aren't where they feel like they have grown or they feel like they're not growing or they're not performing well, it's usually because they underassess and they overestimate their past. So we'll take an athlete. Like I'm coaching athletes right now. How much did you run this week? I ran a lot this week. Really? Okay. And then if you go day by day and you add all their, all their mileage together, it turns out they just didn't run that much, you know? Just didn't run that much. How was your diet this week? I mean, does anyone have a, like an app on their phone that adds up your calories and your carbs? I've got one. It's easy whenever you add that stuff up. You assume that you're doing well, but numbers are a cruel accountability partner, aren't they? Because they have no agenda. They just slap you in the face. They don't care what mood you're in, right? We just don't develop plans. We don't, we're not good architects when it comes to that. I, I guess we think we're just going to grow on accident. Like we're going to force Gump our way to being this great person that gets it all and does it all. But friend, let me tell you, you've got to, you've got to build with a plan. One of the rubs I have, and I try not to be a nerd about this, but whenever I bump into people that are leaving one church for another church, and you ask them why, and they say, because I was not getting fed. Listen, friend, it's not my responsibility to feed you. It's not a pastor's responsibility to feed you. You're supposed to pick up the spoon with your own hand and put it in your mouth. We've got babies right now in the back, and now they're, they're, they're doing that much, right? Usually what that really translates to is I haven't had a plan and I wasn't growing like I wanted to in that last church, so I felt like if I came to this church, at least it could be somebody else's fault and it would be proven in the fact that now I'm going to grow, allegedly. That's what we see. Another thing a dead person does not do, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about that a dead person does not do, is they're not very responsive. You can cut, twist, pull, and they're not going to say, ouch which I'm glad of because I would have wet my pants and passed out on John Doe had that happened, man. That would have been, been all for me. But nothing convicts you anymore. Anyone in that place right now where just nothing convicts you? Truth doesn't have much of an effect on you right now. 
You might see an atrocity, doesn't bother you, just keep walking. Preaching is boring, community is dumb. Even right now, you might be bored to tears. And it might not have anything to do with, with, with how I preach or, or how good or how bad it is. It might have everything to do with the fact that you can't realize right now that I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. You might be the dead one. Consider it. Let's look at Matthew 13 real quickly. I'm going to flip through these passages because I'm going to build a case off of them. And they're very quick. But in Matthew 13, Jesus says, For this people's heart has become calloused. And here, catch it. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. A lot of times we just have armor around our heart. We're not responsive. You can cut our heart. We're not feeling it. We're not bleeding. We're calloused. Right? Psalm 119.70. The psalmist says, The hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. Psalm 73, verse 7, real quickly. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. So this is what we've learned, just real quickly from those three passages. If you have a calloused heart, and that might be you right now, not responsive, we know right now that you can't hear, you have trouble seeing, you don't delight in God's laws, and when you do think of things, you're not thinking of the Lord, you're thinking about sin and how you can pull it off because that's where your affections are are granted. Now listen, what that means is, is if cosmically, if I had the ability to say, hey, you can sin in this one thing and you get a pass. Not even God knows about it. If cosmically, if that was possible, you might have an unresponsive heart if you get that pass, if you take it. Some of you are already thinking, yeah, I might take that pass. If not even God knows, are you kidding? Yeah, I do that all day. You might have an unresponsive heart. You might not be alive just have the reputation of being alive. Now listen, this is the typical response from a sermon like this. Okay, The typical response is you saying to me, Luke, okay, I get it. I'm spiritually dead. I get it. I knew that before I came in here. You convinced me. You've given it. You showed the dead people on the ladder, and I, I get it. I'm there, so I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to try harder. I am too. I'm going to try harder too. But before we march off to try harder, can we look at why we would do that? The motive behind it? Because I think what happens is this. I think people say, and they go home from a sermon like this, and they say, you know what? I've got to get to grinding. I've got to get to cleaning. So I'm going to clean. I'm going to start that Bible reading plan all over again. I know it's like mid-August, but I don't care. And I'm going to read the whole thing before December, which means like an hour a day now, but I'm going to do it. I'm canceling Netflix too. <laughs> now, you're on this, now you're on this thing, right? Oh, and I'm going to get in a community group. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to get an accountability partner. And I'm probably going to tell them 20% of what's really going on, so it at least looks like I'm an accountability. So here I am right here, right? And now I'm going to go to Lifeway, and I'm going to buy a book. I don't know about what, but it's going to have something spiritual on the cover, and I'll grab it, and I'll have now a library of one or two books at home, right? So we do that. And what are we doing? We're, we're cleaning. We're scrubbing. We're sacrificing. We're doing things. So that why? So that we could get here. See, God, I'm here. Do you approve of me now? How do you like me now? I've done it. I've done it. Where's my favor? Where's my blessing? Now, here's the insidious lie in all of this. If you could get here at this place of blessing and favor because of what you've done, then you've rendered Jesus totally useless. You've become your own self-savior. You've become your own Jesus. You've drained all significance from the cross. You've done it yourself. Just as Paul says, 
says, I'm not going to nullify grace because if I can just use works and performance to gain righteousness, then, then Jesus died for no purpose. He says that at the end of Galatians 2. You could look it up on your own. I think that's what happens. The fuel behind what we do is guilt and shame. We feel guilty because we're not doing enough, so we climb the ladder. We feel this obligation and this shame-based obedience starts to take effect and we start doing things so that maybe with all of our sacrifice and striving and sweating, God might give us favor again. That's a big fear of mine right now. That's what we've been conditioned to do is to walk out of church and say, I will try harder, therefore I can be the hero. I can be the hero. Friends, it's about Christ being the hero. Jesus is our king hero. Don't walk out of here thinking that you can do it, that you can manufacture your own grace and favor and approval. You can't do it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. This is why some of you have struggled your whole Christian lives. Upstairs, downstairs. Two steps up, four steps down. Six steps up, one step down. Good days, bad days. Days I find myself at church because I feel clean enough to worship God. Days I avoid everybody because I've done some sin and I don't want anyone to know about it. Up and down and up and down. We just say, God, if I do enough, will you get me up the ladder? Let me tell you, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit that comes by a king who has the seven spirits in one hand. A message to Sardis is a message to us right now right? You can't do the things God has asked you to do with desire and with joy without the Holy Spirit, without a new heart, actually, without a new heart. Your prayer should be, God, give me a new heart so I desire to do these things, not, not so that you do something for me, but because you've already done something for me. God, give me a heart that wants to follow your statutes, not so that you will approve of me, but because you've already approved of me. It's the difference between being religious and a Pharisee and Christianity. That's what we're looking at right now. Let me walk you through this before we finish. Ezekiel 11. Should be up. Can you get that up on screen? There it is. This is God to us, or God to his people. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Listen, when God changes us, we no longer have dead hearts. It's a surgery. It's a heart that was never alive, pulled right from our chest, and a heart that now will respond and is alive, placed right back in our chest. It's a transplant. And you simply can't do the things God has called you to do without that heart. Because even if you're doing the things God has called you to do without that heart, you're not doing the things that God has called you to do. You're doing it to save yourself and make yourself the hero and king instead of it being a worship to him. Right? This new heart is a responsive one. Some of our prayers need to be, God, give me a new heart. Some of our prayers today need to be, God, renew my dying heart. Some of you have been struggling big time. And your prayer today needs to be, God, Renew my sick and dying and wandering heart. Renew it, God. Renew it. I don't want to be like this church, Sardis. I don't want my best days to be, I don't want my best chapters to have already been read. I want to live for your glory, God. So what do we do, Luke, then? Nothing? Sounds like we don't do anything, Luke. 
right? No, we do stuff. We do stuff. He says what? Wake up. He says, wake up. Wake up and remember. Remember what? Remember what's already been given to you. Remember the gospel, the basics, the same thing he told the church last week, to hold fast to, hold fast to those things, right? Admit some things. You need to admit that you're not doing well. That's the first thing you have to do. Admit the depth of your sin. Admit that you're not repairing. Some of you aren't repairing. You need to find that place of unforgiveness. You need to hunt it down. And you need to pray. What, how do we pray? You remember the gospel. You remember what he has given to you that you're keeping, that you're holding fast. God, I'm going to have to forgive this person. Lord, I don't want to forgive this person. It's too hard for me to forgive this person. It means giving up some things that I feel like I need to hold on to. But God, I can afford to forgive all debtors because you have forgiven my debt. I can afford it now. I don't need to hold on to anything. You've given me everything I've needed vertically. So horizontally, I can do whatever you've asked me to do. It needs to be your prayer. Some of you aren't reproducing. Wake up. Wake up. Sow. Sow your time until it hurts. Sow your treasure until it's uncomfortable. Sow your talents. Why? Because you've been deeply sown into. There's nothing you need. You, you, there's no, you can't hoard all of that stuff. It's never going to give you the comfort and the peace and the identity you want. It can't. It can't. Spend freely. You've been given everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place has been pushed on your shoulders. You can afford to sow. You don't have to be one of the 80%. Here's the good news. The good news is that you have been made to wear white garments and placed in a book, if you're a Christian, that your name will never be rubbed out of. This is what this means before I finish. I'm finishing right now. <laughs> it says this in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What does all of that mean? It sounds a little strange, but back then, in those days, in those cities, if you were alive in a city, your name was written in a book. It was a census, like a handwritten census, right? Someone was in charge of that. I hope they got paid a lot. That's pretty boring. They did, right? Now, if you died, your name was taken out of the book. It was a book of, of the living for that city, Okay? Now, this is the deal. If you did something cool, like you saved a woman from a burning building or something like that, or donated a ton of money, your name would never be taken out of that book. In fact, it would be overlaid with gold, and you would be given the privilege to access the king and his court. So, this is all symbolism for us right now. It's all symbolism for us right now, which is how Revelation traffics. So, this is what it's saying. You, friends, if you are a Christian, if Jesus is truly your king, your name will never be snubbed out of that book of life. It is overlaid with gold, not because you did anything good, but because someone else did something good for you. Your name's never going to leave that book. That grace is for you to extend until Jesus comes back on a white horse and has a new supper with us, a new communion with us. It has nothing to do with you. You didn't produce your own ticket to get into that party. You're not in the book of life because you were so awesome and so smart. You chose Jesus above all the world religions because you're so brilliant and you're such a sturdy shopper. You did it because Jesus invaded your space and rescued you as you ran as far and as fast away from him as you could. It's beautiful what he's saying right here. Some of you need to wake up. You need to wake up. By the way, there is no ladder. It doesn't exist. There's no ladder. 
There's no, t- there's no top rung. There's no bottom rung. It just does not exist. You were fully approved. On your worst days, you were approved. You were accepted. On your sleaziest days, you were loved. Not because of what you can and fail to do. It's because of what Christ never failed to do. There's no ladder anymore. And I will finish with this if the team can come out. Those, some of you in here, I do feel like you need to come to life. I don't think you look like you're in a coma. You have no reputation of being alive. You're dead. You're in the ground. You're covered with dirt. You're decayed. You're just bones. You can't bring yourself to life, understand. You can't bring yourself to life. That's something, as we've already looked at in Ezekiel, God does. He brings not the sick to life, but the dead to life. And he does it, does it by his own power, his own counsel, and his own will. And some of you, as you hear the gospel pronounced, are starting to, it might be resonating with you. And I would say, don't leave today without talking to somebody to kind of work through some of those details. It could be confusing. I don't know what God's doing. I got saved when I was like four to camp, and I don't know what that means. Am I saved? Am I lost? Did it take? Did it not? It's weird, some of the questions you get. We, we would love to work through some of that with you, but make no mistake, make no mistake, if you are not written in that book of life and you die, you, your name will be blotted out. That's the most loving thing I can say to you right now. If your name is not in that book of life and you die, your name will be rubbed out. Jesus says so, right here. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to take communion and what we have is we have two tables in the back with elements, not, not any alcohol because we're on school property, but we have juice and we have bread. And as worship is going, you'll see some music going. The team is going to lead us. And as they do that, feel free to go back there and take the elements. We encourage you to take it with community. Go ahead and stand with me. We encourage you to take it with community. And listen, if you have some unforgiveness in your life, now is a primo time to get that taken care of. Now is the time to work through that. Go back there and take communion. We want you to do that. Do it with someone maybe that you need to forgive. That would be beautiful. What a beautiful worship to the Lord that would be. Some of you whose name might not be in that book of life, some of you who are struggling with Christ, that's not something that we encourage you to do. We would actually encourage you to take Christ instead of take communion. It's important to us. So we're going to have people in the back. We'll have Matt and Shannon back there. We'll have Chris and Brandy. Chris, can you be back there? We'll have them back there able to talk to you if you need someone to talk to. But listen, as the lights are down, you're safe here, okay? If you need someone to pray with you, if you need someone to talk to, this is a great time to do it. Let me encourage you. Let me just appeal to you. Let me plead with you. Don't leave today. If you've got work you need to do. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. You're sweet God to us, Lord. That on my worst day, where where my whole life I'm scrambling up the ladder, trying to get to that top rung, you rescue me from that. You rescue me. You rescue us from being our own Jesus. God, you're an adequate Jesus. (laughs) Your cross has blood on it because of what I've done. That grave is empty because of your power. That is adequate. That's sufficient, Lord. Let your work and your glory be the chief affection of my heart, Father that I would not chase after other things. God, help us do an honest assessment to admit and to wake up and see, Father, where we just, we really look more dead than we do alive.
Help us see that with some honesty, with piercing eyes. But Father, even above that, even above that, God, I ask that whatever we do as a response to today, let it be because of our infatuation and our intoxication of who you are. Not an attempt to get up the ladder with our own muscle and brilliance. But let it be a response to your brilliance. Let it be a response to your muscle, Father. You are so good. You are creator God and we love you and we worship you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.